Hello everyone, my name is Anthony Fatsies and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, a podcast breaking down the complex world of finance, investing and trading to make it accessible for everyone. New podcasts are uploaded every Monday and Thursday at 5pm UK time and midday Eastern time. Today on the podcast, we're happy to be hosting Darren Tuttle. With over a decade of experience in capital markets and portfolio management, Darren left Goldman Sachs to manage multi-million dollar portfolios in his early 20s. As Millennial Money Manager, Darren has been featured in Yahoo Finance, Institutional Investor, Business Digest Magazine, and StreetInsider.com for his expert financial insights. Darren is also a key person for investment research, portfolio construction, strategy implementation, monitoring, performance evaluation, and communication investment strategy. He has also worked at Vanguard, Keats Connolly. He was the Director of Investment Strategy at Pacific Capital, where they manage 100 high net worth individual clients' uh, capital with $200 million in assets under management. He has recently gone out on his own, founding Tuttle Ventures, uh, where he is also a fund manager there. I hope you enjoy the podcast and Darren's great insights. If you do enjoy, can you please subscribe and leave a review, which will really help grow the channel and continue to get amazing guests similar to Darren. Thank you. Darren, so thank you so much for joining the What the Finance podcast today. Um, I'd just like to start by asking, sort of, what is your investment philosophy? Yeah, um, you know, uh, Tuttle Ventures is a, a firm that I just started. We're three months old now. Um, we have, uh, I think, a very unique approach. We take a fundamental value equity strategy, primarily based in the U.S., uh, and we overlay that with a relative volatility strategy. Um, so we have a, a combination of just basic uh, fundamental investing, right? That's a tried and true method. Uh, and then we overlay uh, with that some uh, uh, statistical properties and, and trading volatility as an asset class uh, to be able to drive superior returns. Yeah, interesting. So it's the balance between obviously that uh quantitative based stuff and then the fundamental as well well certainly and and i think um you know anybody that's that's investing in 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 a general sense whether it's a derivative or whether it's uh you know a company or a real asset or you know something tangible those those business principles right uh still apply and are you know tried and true methods so yeah, definitely. And so you started your finance career at sort of Goldman Sachs. And then uh, can, you, can you talk about sort of working there, your journey afterwards? And you mentioned Tuttle Ventures there, if you can go on about that as well. Yeah, certainly. So um, I got my start in the operations division of Goldman Sachs, uh, specifically for securities lending. Uh, so I worked with the supply side desk to be able to short shares for uh, uh, counterparties that wanted to uh take concentrated short positions in the market. Um, you know, if you remember Blockbuster, right? Uh, to be able to short those shares legally, you have to be able to issue a locate uh, to satisfy Reg T requirements. Um, and so we had a, a desk that was set up uh, and we had a very small knit group of maybe five or six different counterparties um, with all the big banks. Uh, to be able to source the shares that you needed to be able to locate your or cover your short positions. Um, and, uh, and so that's where I got my start. Uh, from there, uh, the, the, the systems that we were using uh, required a lot of technical expertise. And, and because of that, I really uh, stood out as a, 
uh, subject matter expert. And so they actually moved me to the prop trading desk um, and help onboard clients onto their proprietary trading or electronic trading networks. Um, so I would help uh, hedge funds get transitioned onto Goldman's proprietary trading networks, uh, set them up with all the algos that they would need, all the exchanges that they would need, uh, make sure that none of the traders were making fat finger mistakes. Um, and because of that, I, I, I was kind of put in a very unique approach. I was still, you know, entry level, um, you know, risk analyst, financial analyst position. Um, but then I'd have to explain to a portfolio manager why he's not able to implement that strategy in lean hog futures, right? Um, so uh, I was able to see, uh, you know, from a unique perspective, how many different portfolio managers constructed their portfolios from an operational standpoint, right? And uh, because of that, uh, I knew that I wanted to, going forward, have a, a risk, uh, you know, forward a management approach, a risk factor-based approach uh, to investing and, and to managing portfolios going forward. Yeah, it's interesting. So obviously you started in the uh, helping other people actually, you know, do their trades and then you wanted to do it the other way. So you actually wanted to sort of be, be on the buy side of, of things. Right, right. And I think, you know, every investor has a unique experience that uh, leads them to investing right and i think it's also you know really important to have your own strategy uh to invest in because when time gets uh times get tough or you start to question your individual investment strategy having that that thesis uh, that core thesis that's based on your unique experiences allows you uh to be able to uh you know stick with it uh when when times can get hard have that vision that courage and that patience uh, that that successful investing requires. Yeah, definitely. And you can can you go more into sort of your strategy to maybe even finding companies and then what you do from there? Uh, yeah, certainly. So um, you know, I think one thing is important is when you're looking at a map, right? And then you want to say, okay, like where are we now? Um, and then be able to kind of draw back from that uh, to, you know, how a, a fundamental uh, equity value strategy uh, is constructed and how a volatility overlay enhances returns there. So if you look at, you know, the U.S. or the S&P 500 as kind of a benchmark, uh, you're looking at a forward price to earnings right now of around 21, right, as opposed to the 25-year average of 16. If you uh, use, you know, uh, Schiller's price-to-earnings ratio, we're at 38 compared to the 25-year average of 27. Um, when you drill down a little bit more, right, because the devil's in the details, I love going into the details, if you look at uh, price-to-cash flow and price-to-book, right, these are primarily more value-driven metrics to be able to look at the market, Price to cash flow is, is trading at 16, um, while price to book is trading at four. And, and uh, you know, you also compare those back to their 25-year averages. Price to book is usually trading at three. Three times uh, price to cash flow is usually, uh, you know, 10 or 11 times. So you're looking at these uh, price to cash flow being inherently more expensive now people are willing to pay more for that immediate cash flow than what's actually on uh you know a company's book at any one point in time 
Yeah, it's interesting. Would you say that's maybe linked to sort of the monetary and uh, fiscal policies that's that's occurred, and maybe there's people think there's less risk involved in these co- uh, companies? Yeah, yeah. So, so why value, right? Uh, value, uh, in in a sense, has a, a shorter duration, uh, right? Because uh, the the term of value of your cash flows is is typically already uh, uh, priced into that company, right? They they are able to have that cash on hand from somewhere, right? Where you're determining that what that fair value is or that intrinsic value is going to be. Um, you know, when you look at different interest rate regimes, right? Uh, typically, falling rates dis- disproportionately, you know, uh, help uh, growth stocks, right? From the traditional measure, uh, compared to value uh, stocks. And so, as we've seen rates continuously fall over the last thirty years, um, you know, there's been a, a multiple expansion in growth stocks uh, relative to value stocks. Um, think by like 80% or some ridiculous number like that. So from 2015 onwards, the the multiple expansion for growth stocks has seen significant growth while value, uh, you know, has just been been beaten up along the way. However, if there's an interest rate regime change where interest rates begin to trend upward, um, you know, then you're going to see that shift in uh, the, the expansion multiples fall back into favor for value. Yeah, definitely. We're sort of seeing that at the moment with the, there's the argument, obviously over transitory inflation and actual inflation. And I think most, you know, it's, it seems like it's like some people are for the, for each either or. Um, so, so what, what's your sort of opinion on, on inflation? And I guess, as you said, if, if it isn't transitory and it's more long-term, it would obviously benefit the value companies compared to the growth. Oh, certainly. So, um, you know, I don't think my opinion really matters, um, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, risk cannot be eliminated, only transferred. Um, so, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, there's the the, the law of, of, of large numbers, right? So I can't say what one individual is going to do on an individual basis, whether they're going to charge more for services or not. Um, right, but w- what we can say is, in the longer term, a million people uh, making independent decisions—you uh, know—all all across the world, uh, we can kind of uh, make inferences or have statistical order uh, to that behavior going forward. Um, and and what the the large of law large numbers is telling is that prices uh, are going to increase. And it may not be as transitory as the Fed maybe implies. Um, when you talk about transitory timeframes, are we talking about three months, six months, a year, two years? Uh, you know, Powell's, uh, Powell's latest comments um, infer that transitory, by his definition, uh, is on a one-year or longer time frame. Um, which, uh, you know, may be a different definition or timeframe than, than you or I put at it. Right. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because we've seen sort of CPI this week, very running, very hot. And I think an an interesting part of that was shelter. I'm not sure if you've, uh, sort of looked at the stats that was, I think it was 2.5%. And that's something that we normally see is quite sticky compared to vehicle and and energy and stuff. So I I guess what was it at? I think it was like uh, above five, right? Yeah, I don't think it was that. I think it was about 2.5 or 2.6, but still it was only over, 
yeah, five months. So as you see, yeah, it's probably 5% over the last year, which is extremely high. And it's something that they say that it doesn't, it's not transitory. It's often, if it goes up, it stays there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah. I think, I think also, you know, the, you look at like the pricing mechanisms for things like autos, right? I think autos made up a significant portion of the price increase. I don't, I don't know what the exact number was. Maybe it was around, uh, I don't know, uh, like year over year, auto used car sales, right? Auto um, has significantly increased. And, and uh, you know, one of the trends that I've seen is that the auto industry has actually been more consolidated uh, to a few conglomerates that are able to set prices um, uh, because uh, most people are just checking, you know, what the price of a car is uh, online, but little do they know, you know, that, that feedback uh, that feeds back to a more centralized price setting mechanism uh, uh, online to be able to source used car prices going forward. So to me, I think that the, the barriers have been established now uh, for you know, used car prices as, as another asset that is kind of a tiny bubble that we see everywhere uh, rising upwards over time. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting how they're saying, you know, some people are selling their 2013 Toyota Corollas and all these different cars for you know, more money than they bought it, which is a crazy thing to think about right. in a deflationary asset. <laughs> right, right, certainly. But, yeah. um, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, as, as you look forward, um, you know, Europe, uh, there was always this big question, right, uh, back, back in the day where uh, was um, the uh, U.S. going to lower interest rates um, to coincide with uh, the monetary policies that were set in place by the EU? Or was the EU going to have to raise interest rates to the level that the US was pre-COVID, right? I'm talking 2018, 2019. What we saw was uh, the US actually, uh, you know, adopt the, the same, you know, modern monetary th uh, theory and, and, and money printing policies that Europe had been implementing for, for uh, many years before. And so we saw the U.S. consolidate down in terms of interest rates to the EU. Um, so I think going forward, if uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, interest rates rise or, or maybe we're seeing these inflation pressures uh, kind of percolate to the surface, I think the EU is going to be the leading indicator um, for that monetary policy change in terms of rising interest rates as well, similar to how it was with the falling interest rate regime. That's interesting. So you think they'll be the first ones to obviously, uh, yeah, raise their interest rates and that might be a leader to the US? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's just my, you know, personal opinion. But, um, you know, I know that you are, are primarily in uh, the, uh, the space of, um, let's see, uh, emerging markets, right? That's kind of your specialty or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With um, you know, emerging markets for me, when I look at the emerging market universe, um, you know, I'm looking at it more from a geopolitical uh, uh, lens uh, and, and more along the lines of, of trade imbalances, right? So this goes back to that inflation narrative. Um, in the U.S., we have a, uh, a trade deficit, right? And what is a trade deficit? It just means that your trades or, or goods and services are uh, you know getting uh, imported more than what you're exporting out to other countries? Uh, so the U.S. for years has been running a trade deficit, 
Uh, and I think we're now at the tune of uh, 1.4 trillion, uh, nice. you know, last time I checked. <laughs> and when you run a trade deficit, uh, there's a couple of things that are really important. One of the things that's important is how you're funding that deficit, right? Are you funding it with, with money that you have uh, inside your own country? Are you printing money to do that? Or do you have foreign direct investment? Um, and now it looks like the U.S. is now trying to print their way uh, out of their current account deficit, which is uh, you know, literally impossible to do. What, what you have to do is you have to build, uh, grow, uh, and produce more goods and services uh, internally uh, than, than what you're uh, importing from other countries. Um, so I think that the uh, trade deficit, right, uh, and having that litmus test of what's the parameter to be able to see changes in the currency uh, is, is important to look at it from the lens of this giant trade deficit that you're having to build yourself out of. And if you're funding it in your own currency rather than a foreign currency, that, uh, that makes it more difficult to do. Uh, and it, it may lead to this uh, you know, inflation narrative lasting longer than just maybe a transitory timeframe from what Powell is describing as maybe a, a year or, or more. Yeah, definitely. And that's another one of those debates about whether they're, you know, obviously the, the Fed are trying to sort of inflate their way out of a lot of the debt that they're, that, that, that they've sort of accrued over these last 15, 20 yeah. years. Well, well, I'm interested to hear your side of that debate. What do you think? Um, I'm not too sure. I, I don't think they are. I think they're trying to, that they wouldn't mind if interest rates stay low and then that they said what what we're hearing from Yellen is she's sort of focusing more on the the amount of interest being paid rather than how large the actual debt is. So I think that's sort of going to be the main focus of, of what they look at personally. So they're, they're really just going to, if they, they're going to try to keep interest rates as low as possible for as long as they can to try and keep the interest they're actually paying quite low. Certainly, certainly. And that makes sense, you know, going back to those uh, forward multiples that I was talking about where price to cash flow right now, uh, you know, is almost four times uh, what price to book is. Uh, that cash flow um, is, is of fundamental importance uh, when you're looking at, you know, valuations uh, uh, from, uh, from a value lens or a value perspective. Can you cover your debt, interest payments, you know, your interest coverage ratio? Do you have the cash flow uh, that you need and, and focusing you know, less on uh, revenue growth as a, as a primary driver or, you know, top line GDP growth as a primary driver for funding that, that, that uh, out of that current, uh, current account deficit. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see sort of uh, <laughs> how, how it goes. It's that uh, we can all predict, but it, obviously we don't know. Um, do, do you sort of have any other major macro events that you're focusing on or things that you're watching out for? No, I mean, if you're, if, if you're, you know, in the emerging market space, I think, um, you know, a big influencer for me is uh, George Freeman. Um, so he uh, coined the term uh, a geopolitics um, and uh, he's, he's wrote the book, a couple of books, the, the next 10 years or the next 100 years. And, you know, if you take the base, basic premise of that book, he talks about the greatest opportunities and and risks for countries uh, specifically going forward have to do with their geopolitical makeup, right? So these emerging market economies 
Um, and people have lived in them for literally thousands of years, right? Um, they're not emerging by, by any sense in terms of their uh, population. Uh, you know, what it is, is it's adopting, uh, you know, uh, and accommodating for their economies into a, a global uh, infrastructure. And, uh, you know, George Friedman talks a lot about who's able to have the best sort of uptake into that. Uh, if you look at, you know, Singapore as opposed to Vietnam uh, and, uh, and their adoption into the, the global market economy is more of a litmus test for, uh, you know, emerging market economies going forward. And that's just kind of a unique lens uh, that I look at emerging, uh, you know, markets in general. Yeah, Jeff, that's interesting because I actually um, had a fund manager from uh, Vietnam and he was saying that the, the stock exchange has only been open, I think, for like 25 years or something. So that's that's another thing that you look at the emerging markets, just as you said, the the way they finance things. You know, you look at the UK and it's hundreds of years compared to that 25. So that's why they're really mentioned as emerging. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's a, um, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, which is interesting. And in the US, are there any other sort of things that you're watching? Or do, so obviously you need to focus on the macro, but then would you more look at the the cash flow of the, the individual companies? Yes. Yeah. So uh, you know the the way that I construct a portfolio uh, is made up of a concentrated basket of uh, maybe ten to twenty names at any one point in time. Uh, and when it, when I construct that basket, I make sure to have the bull and the bear case scenario for every position that's that's taken. Uh, make sure that they have, you know, stable revenue growth, uh, make sure that their operating margins are best in class, right, typically over above 30 percent, uh, and that uh, it's, it's sector constrained as well, right? So you're not overloading uh, in, one, in one value sector uh, to be able to really diversify and, and bring that idiosyncratic risk uh, to the forefront, uh, as opposed to market risk. And, you, and, and what I for, firmly believe uh, right now is that that idiosyncratic or company-specific risk, buying good companies, often good, boring companies, uh, you know, at, at fair relative value prices is, is more of a realist approach that we're going to need going forward uh, than more of the idealist or, or, or growth uh, stories that we've been told for the last 10, uh, 20 years. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. And what would you sort of say is like, are the biggest mistakes that people make when, you know, constructing a portfolio? Um, you know, uh, for me, uh, I, so a couple of things, um, you know, because I've, I've been working on the portfolio management space, uh, for so long, right. I was a port a portfolio manager, uh, Keats Conley, we managed half a billion in assets between the U.S. and Canada. Um, I was the director of investment strategy at Pacific Capital. I managed 200 million uh, in, in, uh, in a broad basket ETF asset class breakdown structure. Um, a lot of times, you know, when investors would come to us and ask, you know, hey, like, what are the, the, the you know, three things that I should be doing right off the bat? Uh, you know, the first one is, is know what you own. Uh, a lot of people don't know actually what they hold in their portfolio, or if they do hold it, you know, maybe they're only hearing one side of the story. Um, so, so knowing what you own is, is very important. Uh, you know, are you, are you owning equity in a company? Are you owning a derivative contract? Are you owning, um, 
you know, a real tangible asset or, uh, you know, something that's just based on, to, uh, uh, you know, a, a cryptocurrency or a, a promise to deliver, right? Um, so that's the first thing is knowing what you own and really kind of driving down to that first principle from the fundamental perspective uh, and having like that business mindset of uh, if, if you were owning this company and you were running the company, right? What are some things that you would want to see in that company if you're gonna hold it for the next two months or the next 20 years? So that's the first one, knowing what you own. Uh, the second is, is understanding uh, the bull and bear case for every scenario. Um, so what I mean by that is I often, you know, will get so excited about a stock uh, and and uh, really think through all the positive aspects, all the all the, the 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 great things that could happen to this company going forward in the future and where it's at now. Um, and then I, I spend less time where I, I kind of decrease the the impact or or negatively weight the um, implied probabilities of adverse scenarios, right? Because Naturally, as an investor, you want to be an optimist, but the better you understand both the bull and the bear case for every position that you hold, um, the better uh, and the more conviction that you can have uh, to be able to uh, successfully invest over long periods of time. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a really good way to look at it, I think. Um, and then sort of for yourself, if you look at the mistakes you've made and you know, maybe in the market or just in general, what have you learned from those? Yeah. I think um, position sizing is very important. Um, so you can uh, you can hit a home run, uh, right? Uh, one time uh, playing baseball, right? If I use a baseball analogy, you can hit a home run and, and you can hit it one time. And then uh, if you don't get any, any more hits throughout the, the rest of the game, you'll only score one point, right? Uh, but if you have, you know, a, a nine batters up to bat and they all hit singles, uh, you know, you're going to be scoring four or five runs, uh, you know, uh, during that same inning, right? So that's just, you know, a naive sports analogy where I think a lot of investors initially want to come up to bat, swing for the fences and hit home runs. Um, but little do they realize that if you uh, position size, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a smaller aspect ratio, uh, you're able to hit more singles and you're actually able to score more runs over time. Yeah, it's interesting. Was that from a mistake you made in the past where you maybe over leveraged or went went a bit too big on a position? No, no. I think I think the other is you can't um, you can't uh, you can't just go up there and bunt, right? Um, so, for example, uh, you can't go, uh, you know bunt and expect to earn runs as well. You actually have to hit singles or doubles uh, to be able to successfully invest. You know, for example. Um, uh, you know, just recently in, in the commodity space. So we made an allocation to commodities in January of, of, of 2021. It, 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 you know, for the first half of the year, it turned out to, to perform very well, a broad basket of, of commodity futures. Uh, the problem is, you know, if you're only allocating, uh, you know, one or 2% uh, into commodities at that point in time, it's not gonna have a meaningful impact on the portfolio as you would like. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a limit to the upside potential uh, based on your position sizes. So sometimes you have to have a higher level of conviction to be able to have a meaningful impact on the portfolio. So I'm, I'm generally a, a more conservative uh, investor, right? And the approach 
uh, often, you know, leads to that efficient market hypothesis and being able to find, you know, those optimal weights within a portfolio or an asset class. But if you uh, want to have above market returns, you have to deviate from uh, those, those asset class weights based on a historical look back period and start looking to the future. Um, so you can have that vision of, uh, you know, seeing the underpinnings of inflation uh, leading into 2021. Um, but then if you don't have that level of conviction to, you know, allocate maybe five or, or even 10% of your portfolio, uh, then you're not able to have as much outperformance relative to the market because you're only making, you know, very small deviations. Yeah, definitely. And how have you built that conviction? Because obviously it can sometimes be, especially if you've had a, ba a bad run or a bad trade, it can be quite hard to sort of trust yourself. So how do you, how do, you do that yourself? Um, that's a good question. Well, well how do you do that? <laughs> For me, oh, I'm probably not the best uh, person. I actually talked to someone recently who's a, uh, his name is Jaron Tenler and he focuses on like the mental uh, sort of part of trading and he's coach poker players and everything. And he basically, he's, says it's just having a strategy to understand your red flags and then sort of peel back the onions and actually say, okay, why is this happening? Why am I acting like this? What's happening? And then actually digging deeper. So if you sort of understand yourself completely, then you just, then you can have the conviction. It's I can't, I can't say something I, I have a hundred percent down backs. Yeah. I'm still learning, but yeah, but that's sort of what he said, where you have to understand yourself completely uh, and understand, okay, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that you know, this is going to work. I have my strategy. I know what I have to do. I know, you know, if the numbers hit this certain reading, then okay, that's, you know, that's looking good. I got to, I just got to back it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one thing for me is, um, you know, poker, I think is great. Uh, yeah, a great teacher, right. Um, it's going to give you that perspective of, uh, you know, putting real money at the table and then also combining it with uh, probability distributions, right? Um, or uh, uh, statistics. So uh, having uh, poker, right, as a kind of a teacher, a playground, um, and then having uh, statistics and statistical analysis to be able to uh, know how much uh, and avoid that probability of ruin, right? Because you want to stay in the game, you want to keep playing. Uh, is a great teacher. Um, I, my wife's a yoga instructor, uh, so, so I actually do a lot of yoga or meditation. Um, and, uh, and getting in that rhythm or that, 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 that sense of flow. Um, so oftentimes when I'm taking a market pulse, when I'm, when I'm seeing you know, different readouts from the portfolio, or I'm trying to get a sense of what tail risk looked like at any one point in time, uh, you know, I'm updating my information uh, with, uh, I'm updating my probability distributions based on new information. Most analysts, um, right, uh, uh, would rather uh, fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally, right? And so, um, you know, when I, when I see that, you know, the price of an underlying changes and uh, the information on the ground changes, uh, then, I, then I'm able to update my, my expectations or probabilities going forward for that small basket of, of single names that I'm holding on a fundamental perspective. Uh, and then also um, uh, on, on the volatility side as well, as the volatility surface uh, changes, you know, relative to its term structure, uh, to the option prices, and, and as 
time to expiration changes over time as well. So updating those frameworks is is critically important for me to be able to make sure that uh, you know I'm staying within the the risk parameters of the portfolio that's constructed. Yeah, awesome. And there you sort of mentioned having that vision. And I think that's something that I've seen you mention before online where you need to have sort of that vision of the future and, you know, not just focus on the now. Um, so is there anything else that you sort of see that are trends in the future or that vision for specifically, you know, the US? Yeah, um, you know, it's, I'm going to use another naive, uh, you know, sports analogy, but it's skating to where the puck is going to be, right? Um, so in hockey, right, you're trading or, or like on the pitch for, for soccer, right? So you, if, if you just pass, you know, where, where, you know, somebody is, is already at, you're going to miss them. Um, so, so having that vision. So a, a couple of them is, is number one, I, I believe that volatility as an asset class is going to be mass adopted. Um, that's the first one. The, the second is, um, I believe that we're in a period now similar to the mid 1970s where uh, there was a transition in energy and monetary policy. Um, so the transformation in energy uh, is re related to, you know, decarbonization, but it also creates opportunities relative to renewable energy credits right, or the EU Green New Deal um, is creating opportunities to be able to trade uh, kind of the second order derivative of this energy transformation uh, from a financial engineering standpoint. So that's, that's another really big opportunity is, is trading in the US, we call them RECs, right, or RECs. Um, that market is going to explode over time. Uh, and then the third is uh, related to cybersecurity. And I've mentioned this in my, in my newsletter, um, where cybersecurity is not going away. And uh, the investment in technology and the fact that technology disrupts um, has created a disruption in terms of uh, having a secure network and being able to work remotely and, and do that securely. So I think that going forward, investing in good cybersecurity companies is becoming a priority of uh, executive management and it's going to have a greater significance going forward. Um, when I talk about technology disrupting, right, if you think about in 2004, the market for ringtones, right, was, was a $6 billion industry. I remember buying ringtones, right, on my, my little Nokia phone. Um, and, and I, I would wonder what the, what the market is now for ringtones, right? Yeah. It's essentially zero. Yeah. So you had a $6 billion industry go to zero, uh, over what, 2004. So, you know, 16, 15 years, uh, that's incredible. So, you know, five years from now, there may be a market that we have no idea about and, and understanding that you need to be dynamic, uh, to, you know, what's around you and open to new opportunities is, I think, also critically important as well. Yeah, definitely. And would you sort of um, focus more on the technology side then? I guess you're in California, so it's a good place to be. Is, is that what you do? You sort of look at new innovations that are coming through and maybe new companies or how would you do that? Um, I, you know, I get a lot of my ideas from others. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, FinTwit, uh, listening and talking to people there. Um, 
you know, I, I think finding uh, a great investment ideas also takes you believing in it before anybody else does. Um, you know, for example, one of the core positions in my portfolio is uh, is Biogen. Uh, the, the ticker is BIIB. Uh, we initiated a position in it uh, in the beginning of January of 2021 um, with no expectation about where the Alzheimer's drug development process was going to be in terms of FDA approval. And it just so happened that because they have the cash, because they have uh, operating margins in, 80, uh, in the 80 percent, uh, because they have uh, the uh, relative value to be able to apply to research and development, they brought this drug, uh, you know, out on a on a great, you know, one day announcement, and the stock shot up thirty four percent. So you can even, uh, you know, make an investment on on something based on some sound fundamental principles, and because you're in the right place at the right time, you're able you're able to participate in that upswing as it needs to be or, or as it happens. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's pretty, pretty good uh, position there. So you sort of talked about volatility as well. So when, when you say trading that, is that like VIX and sort of other uh, sort of ways to trade volatility? Is that what you suggest there? Yeah, yeah. So um, where do you want me to start with that? Because, uh, you know, coming from uh, my perspective on trading volatility, uh, can be, you know, somewhat uh, different for uh, how you're looking at uh, things going forward, um, because the the past of what volatility has looked like in the markets for volatility and trading volatility and and using it as a profit mechanism and a tail hedge uh, is is somewhat different in its construct to what is uh, going to be forward. Uh, you know, namely, uh, you know. Uh, very esoteric, uh, institutionalized, uh, over-the-counter products that were lim limited to, you know, uh, a few, uh, uh, you know, main players is now uh, getting democratized to uh, to the masses. Um, so I say that uh, and I take a breath because, uh, you know, that can go in a variety of different directions. Yeah. So do you want to start from the beginning? So for, for me, I really only know, uh, as I said, just trading VIX and that. I don't really know too much more about sort of trading volatility. So maybe you want to start from the beginning and maybe the future of where it's going to potentially be able to go and what people will be able to do in, in the market. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from from its most basic perspective, options uh, and, and trading, you know, that optionality uh, is able to give you asymmetric payoffs. Um, right. And then uh, when you trade an option, uh, you have different types of risk, right? You have your delta risk, right, which is your price sensitivity to that underlying. Uh, and then um, you also have your your vega, right, which is your price sensitivity to changes in implied prob uh, volatility. Well, if you just talk about the, the principles of, of trading volatility, right? So volatility is, is mean reverting. Uh, volatility uh, is able to uh, have a negative correlation to equities. And uh, volatility, uh, you know, in, in, the, in some senses has a path dependency or a serial correlation, uh, meaning that 
yesterday's volatility, depending on the strategy that you're using, has somewhat of an impact of what volatility will be tomorrow. Um, and so those three aspects of volatility and specifically isolating that, that, um, that exposure, that Vega exposure, uh, is where you're able to have convex payoffs or make large gains uh, when, when the market drops a lot. Um, so, you know, for example, if you're just trading straight, straight Vega, right, or the price change relative to implied probability, uh, you can be able to reflect that just in option prices. So if you think that the price of something is going to go down, you can buy a put option uh, with, you know, a 10% buffer or 10% out of the money. Or you can buy what's called a doomsday put where uh, you're buying an option that's 30% out of the money uh, on a stock dropping. And, and what uh, the research has showed is that actually if you're buying a stock uh, put option at a 30% out of the money or a doomsday put, um, that if the price of that stock drops, the value of your put option at the 30% level increases, but it also does something else. It actually steps on the gas pedal and it actually increases in value at an accelerated rate relative to your 10% or 10% out of the money put option. So just that, oh, oh, so uh, just in its purest sense, it means that when you need uh, you know, some a hedge, uh, the lower option prices actually have the greatest level of protection or the greatest level of price appreciation uh, when you need it most. And, and that's what's called Volga. Um, so when uh, it's like a second order derivative of that first order derivative of Vega. And, and then that's where, you know, option strategies can blow up. Uh, that's where you're able to uh, be able to make money on those relative price differentials or relative value differentials uh, between different asset classes. And then you're also able to hedge your bets um, across the board. So uh, in its purest sense, uh, buying out of the money put options on a company is, is a good tail hedge risk, but it, but it also has that cost of insurance. And then to be able to offset that cost of insurance, you can, uh, you know, offset that with an option on that same company, uh, or you could go out into the market and, and find other offsetting uh, costs to be able to reduce that insurance premium across other asset classes as well. So in its purest sense, you know, trading volatility or trading a volatility overlay uh, in the sense that we implement it is, is we look at those interrelations between asset classes on a broad-based index. Uh, and then we look to hedge that exposure, reduce that insurance premium with other cross-asset correlations. Yeah, well, that's super interesting because I guess uh, in the UK and uh, <laughs> it is, it's, it's fascinating. In the UK and Australia, we sort of have CFDs. So... You know, if you, if you want leverage, you don't have to go sort of the option route. You can just basically, it's, it's like a long or a short. Um, so, but, but yeah, that's interesting how you're saying that even if it's more out of the money, it's obviously less chance for it to actually, uh, the contract to sort of expire in the money. You actually might be better to to take that because there's more, you know, there's more upside in the short term if, if the price goes the right way. Right. And, 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 and specifically, if you isolate, um, 
you know, volatility as your exposure, uh, then, um, you know, you're, you don't even have to have that, that option expire uh, in the money uh, to be able to make a relative value gain or a profit from trading volatility. So uh, the short answer is if you, if you isolate those mechanisms from an options perspective, there's, you know, uh, people buy options for many different reasons, right? Um, from the big players to the small players, if, if you're in a war, uh, you know, and, and you have tanks and you have, uh, you know, assault vehicles and you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, aircraft carriers, and then there's somebody out there with just a bow and arrow, uh, you know, they're able to kind of avoid or, or stay away from, you know, some of those bigger players and be able to be effective, uh, you know, in 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 the in, in the battlefront because they're just playing by a different set of rules, and and that's what happens when you're trading uh, relative volatility strategies. Yeah, definitely. So you're not even trading the value of the like the company in general. You, as you said, you're just trading the volatility. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I well. think that that's where that's where you have to go back and you get grounded into buying good companies at fair prices. And then building on that uh, to be able to to enhance returns, right? This is a return enhancer. It's not always on in the portfolio, um, and uh, and so it's 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 limited in, in its use case, but it's there when you need it, which is most important. Yeah, it's just like another tool in your arsenal that you can use to you know maximize returns. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, th- thank you so much to add. Darren for sort of joining the podcast and talking to me. I I just like to ask my last question. So what is one message you'd like people to sort of take away uh, from our chat? Hmm. Just like one thing. Um, If you have a few, if you have a few, that's okay. (laughs) No, I mean, I think going back to that principle that, that risk, you know, uh, can't be eliminated, but only transformed. uh, Right. So understanding your trade-offs, uh, and and being able to price those trade-offs in the right sense is the most important thing for successful investing going forward. And uh, and I think that if you can take that and think about the world in terms of trade-offs, uh, that that you'll be a much better uh, investor going forward. Yeah, awesome, great advice. So, um, if people wanted to get in contact with you or um, sort of yeah, get in contact, what would be be the best way to do that? Yeah, um, so you can uh, visit my website at uh, www.tuttleventures.com uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Darren Tuttle, uh, D-A-R-I-N-T-U-T-T-L-E, or you can find me on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm on there at, uh, at uh, Darren underscore T-8-0. Uh, that's me, so. All right, perfect. So yeah, Darren, thank you so much for joining us. All right, thanks, Tony. Cheers.